Okay, here we are in Luke chapter 3. And it is the chapter in which John the Baptist begins preaching. And the purpose of his preaching is to prepare a people for the Lord, to make them ready. And when I was thinking about this, I think about knowing there's an appointment beforehand. What do you do? You know, if you're flying, you get there three hours ahead of time because you know something's going to go wrong. You're going to go through security and have a hiccup. Something's going to go wrong. And you know, you can imagine buying a ticket, getting to the airport, and you missed your plane. I know people that's happened to. You think, what was all that about? And what's really terrible is this embarrassment and the shame. Like, I've had this ticket all this time, and yet I didn't use my time wisely. I blew it. There's nothing there but embarrassment and shame. Now, here's an appointment that God fixed in eternity, and it has come to the time when he is about to come. But his people aren't ready for him. And if he shows up and they're not ready, they're already prepared for shame and everlasting contempt. Well, God prepares his people. So they won't endure everlasting shame and contempt, and he does it by humbling them. Only when you're humbled are you ready for him to come. So here we are in Luke chapter 3, and it says here, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod, being Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea, in the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So, what we want to notice first is that Luke ties his history to current events, grounding what he writes here in history, because this is how ancient writers fixed the date because there was no absolute 
method of saying what year was it, what time was it. They would synchronize it by the reigns of important people. And Luke has already done this in chapter 1. He's done it in chapter 2. He's doing it here. And the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar is a historical date. Now, Tiberius was the adopted son of Caesar Augustus, the first emperor. So now he's the second emperor of the Roman Empire. He was the son of Augustus' wife, Livia. But he was not Augustus' son. Augustus adopted him. He was a general and a successful general. And what Augustus did was adopt him, rule with him, and then after Augustus died, Tiberius took over. He was on his own. Now, the 15th year of Tiberius makes this date that John begins to preach the year 27 AD, as we reckon it. So that's a fixed date in history. And of course, all the other rulers mentioned in these verses are also known to us from history. Secular historians like the Jewish writer Josephus, also in the first century, wrote of these people. I have a book of history written by Will Durant. And all these guys are written in there. I was just reading about them. There's way more on Tiberius and what kind of a grouch he was. Explaining that Herod is not Herod the Great, but his son, Herod Antipater. Antipas, sorry. And his brother, Philip. So... All these guys are historical. This is history. And then John begins at this time to preach the gospel. And I know it's the gospel because, well, it's down in verse 18. And with many other exhortations, he preached to the people. But the word there is the word that would also be translated evangelized. He's preaching the good news. That's what evangel means. When you're evangelizing somebody, you're telling them the good news about Jesus. That's what he's doing. Now, the word of God has come to John. Isn't that an interesting way of putting it? John didn't make up his message. John didn't look at the social scene and decide that somebody somewhere had to speak up on issues and lay out some kind of biblical position, stand up for what is right. He was out in the wilderness. And that's important because the wilderness is a place that has no civilization at all, no veneer of what men consider to be important, the huge issues of our day, it's just rocks out there, and he's eating locusts and wild honey. There's nothing out there except you and God, and he was waiting. And then at a certain time, in the year 27, 
the word of God comes to him and he knows what he is to say. And he begins to speak forth the word of God. It says here, in all the region around the Jordan, which is not the wilderness, that's where people live. And so he's preaching. And the purpose of all this preaching is to prepare a people for the Lord. That's what was spoken before he was born. That's his purpose. That's why he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And it's according to the words of Isaiah the prophet. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. The image here is a king making a visit to a city. And when a king comes to a city, everything is supposed to be ready for him, prepared for him, so that his entrance is smooth. He doesn't want to fight with obstacles and difficulties and opposition because he's the king. He doesn't have to put up with this. And so you're not to just say, well, you know, whatever. Anytime you want to show up, king, it's cool. You go before and you prepare his way because he doesn't have to put up with opposition, distractions, obstacles, difficulties. Forget that. Smooth it out. So all the hindrances have to be removed. And there's four of them here. Do you see what they are? Every valley shall be filled. In some translations, you have ravine. And a ravine or a valley is a depression in the earth. And especially ravine is something that has been cut by rushing water and the earth taken away. It's low. But then you got mountains and hills. And of course, you know, going up a hill, that's work. And coming down even is work. Now, usually you let mountains and hills go because... You ever tried to move a mountain? That's hard. But it says here, every mountain and hill will be laid low. So basically when the Lord comes, he doesn't go around mountains. He doesn't have to lower that mountain. Then we got crooked places. It's not straight, crooked. They kind of go hither and yon. And have you ever tried to go a crooked way? It's really frustrating because you go left, you go right, you go left, you go right. Where are we going? I don't know. Where does this lead? I don't know. What does the satnav say? The satnav says, get off this road. Crooked. You never end up where you're going. Rough. You don't want rough because that's rough. It jolts you. It's hard. Hard on your horses. Hard on your carriage. Have you ever hit a pothole lately? You know that our nation's roads are potholes loosely held together with, you know, 
road surfacing. So yeah, how's the alignment? Oh, it's fine. But the king does not have to experience that. So all the rough stuff gets taken away. But you know, God doesn't travel in a carriage. And it's not talking about a physical trip to some physical city someplace. This is about the approach of God to a human heart and all the obstacles and difficulties in that human heart have to be dealt with. So think about it metaphorically. What are the obstacles to God entering a heart? Well, one is, I'm low. I'm depressed. And you could boil that down to, I can't. You get low because you think about yourself. But why are you lifted up like a mountain? Because I'm too important. You think about yourself. Why do you become crooked and deviate from a straight way? Because you think about yourself. I'm going my own way. You're rough and you don't care about jolting others because you think about yourself. I don't care. So these are the obstacles to God arriving in a human heart. I can't. I'm too important. I'm going my own way. I don't care. If you talk to people about Jesus, it's going to be one of those responses. I can't. I'm too important. I'm doing my own thing. I don't care. And that's why stops right there. Obstacles. Now, John prepares the way of the Lord. Let's see how John prepares the way of the Lord and gets rid of obstacles and difficulties. In verse 7, Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. Now as all the people were in expectation, and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, 
But one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations, he preached to the people. John has a very direct way of flattening everyone equally, all at the same time. He preaches the word of God, certain judgment on everyone. Thought about this question? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What kind of a question is that? Is that how you make friends and influence people? Hi. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, you brood of vipers? How far are you going to get with that? Can you say that and care about people's reactions? No. He says, who warned you? What good do you think it will do to flee from the wrath to come? You're in it. He's not saying, well, this could happen to you if you don't watch out. He's saying, both your feet are in hell right now. This sort of means you have a bigger problem than I can't, I'm too important, I'm doing my own thing. I don't care. You have bigger problems than looking at yourself. Because your situation is magnitudes worse than you ever dreamed. Fleeing will not help you. Because you have to look away from yourself and see that you are in the judgment of God right now. You know, Jesus, I noticed, used the very same words to the Pharisees. And he added, brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? How will you escape the wrath of God? And the point is, you can't. There's no place to go. The reason for judgment and condemnation from God is righteous wrath for not living the life that God made you to live. And John says here, you bear no fruit for God. Verse 8, he says, therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. What kind of fruits have you borne to this point? Worthless fruits. What he's referring to is a motif in Scripture that is most apparent in Isaiah chapter 5, where God tells a parable about a man who builds a vineyard 
on a hill, puts a wall around it, puts everything in it that needs to happen to produce good fruit. And then it produced worthless fruit. He says, what am I going to do? I am going to break down the wall, destroy everything that I've built up. And this parable describes God's people. In verse 7 of Isaiah 5, it says this, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. And for this worthless fruit, God will judge every person. Later in Isaiah 5, it says this, Their banquets are accompanied by lyre and harp, by tambourine and flute, and by wine. But they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge, and their honorable men are famished, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol, that's the place of the dead, has enlarged its throat and opened its mouth beyond measure. In Jerusalem's splendor, her multitude, her din of revelry and the jubilant within her, descend into it. So the end of a badly lived life is eternal punishment in hell. In verse 17, do you notice that he says the Lord is coming. He'll gather up the wheat into his barn, but he'll burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. So this is an act of judgment where the righteous are separated from the wicked. And the righteous are brought to the Lord, but the chaff, the worthless stuff, the wicked, are burned. In Isaiah 66, it says, For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. So it's amazing that people are going to go from the presence of the Lord and then look on people who are being punished eternally, where the fire never goes out. And this is what I was referring to earlier about shame and everlasting contempt. The eternal punishment would be enough. But to be watched by people. And this happens every week and every month to endure everlasting shame and contempt. To be an abhorrence to all mankind. 
That is the punishment for a life lived badly. And John's point in all this is that the Lord is coming for judgment, and you are not ready. You are liable to eternal wrath and eternal punishment. And he also makes clear that no one can make up for a badly lived life. In this reference here to Abraham, he says, don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Like, that's going to help. There's two ways that could be taken. One is, God promised him that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the heavens. And you know what that means is, if you get rid of me, that's going to be one less star for Abraham, and you can't fulfill your promise, so we kind of got you over a barrel here. You need me. I'm a son of Abraham. And John says, God doesn't need you. If he wants to, he can turn all of these rocks into sons of Abraham. So don't think your badly lived life is somehow tied to somebody's promise from God. It's not, it's not going to work. But there was also this idea that Abraham was so blessed by God, he has a super abundance of merit before God. And he's there to help out anybody who comes up short. One story is that he's at the mouth of Sheol, looking out for Jews. Up, oh, you're not going to go there, my friend. I'm Abraham. I'm here to help you. So just because you're a descendant of Abraham, that means get out of jail free. You live badly, but he's there to help you out. And you know, that, that idea is still with us. This is the whole reason why you want to pray to Mary and the saints, because they have a superabundance of merit, and they can use that merit to help you out when you're not doing so good. It's just an interesting thing about when you talk to a Roman Catholic person and you say, well, how are you doing? How's your relationship with God? They say, well, I'm not a very good Catholic. You know? It's like, yeah, I know I'm not, I don't measure up or anything, but I'm still a Catholic and I don't want anything you've got. But this idea that, that Mary's going to help me out, that's where my hope is. John says, no, nobody can help you because you're on your own. And nobody can help you. You have lived badly, and you are liable to God. You are responsible for the way you've lived. He's coming, and you're not ready. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, verse 10 is really a miracle when you think about it. Because the people respond to John, and in effect, they are saying, you're right. They hear John speak the word of God, and it pricks them in the heart, and they agree, I am guilty before God. 
Now, what's interesting here is that John did not perform any miracles. He didn't perform any signs. There's nothing outward visually impressive about John. He didn't call down fire from heaven as you would expect someone to do who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. No miracles. Nothing impressive except that he was filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And now he is speaking not his words, but the very words that God gave him when they came to him in power. And these people believed that John was telling them the truth, and they responded to the truth. That conviction comes from God. Did you know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God? Faith does not come through miracles. You know that miracles are really hard to verify? Did that happen? Or is it a real urban legend? But you can verify the truth. Did you know that? You never have to be taken in by somebody because you can verify what they say if it is true or not. And if you find out that it's not true, you can ignore them. You're supposed to. You can verify if somebody is true or not. You compare what they say with the word of God. And the word of God is true. And so that's what these people responded to here. They responded to the truth. Miracles are a terrible foundation for your faith. Only the word of God is a true foundation for your faith. So here's the first part of the gospel. Judgment. Certain judgment. You have to know where you're at before God. And these people have found out we're guilty. We have sinned against God. Now John preaches the second part of the gospel, which is repent. Now repent means to change your mind but because you change your mind, you change your actions. Before, you said, I can't. I'm too important. I'm going my own way. I don't care. And now, you say, yes, Lord. You obey him. John is telling them to do God's will, not their own will. All these things he's telling them to do are in the law of God. That is, when you see your neighbor without clothing, you give him clothing if you got it. And if he doesn't have food, then you share your food with him. And you don't abuse your job to make money. If you're a tax collector, 
which is a perfect position to abuse your power because you got all of Rome standing behind you and you just make them give you a little bit more. How about a whole lot more? Because I said so. Or being a, a soldier. John is literally telling them, don't shake anybody down. You know what that means. You grab them and you shake them and you say, give it up. And they go, and they give you whatever you want because you're big and strong and you're a Roman soldier. John says, don't do that. Don't accuse anybody falsely. Be content with your wages. Do a good job for your employer. Now, this stuff isn't rocket science. Do what God says to do. Does repentance save you? No, it doesn't. It doesn't make up for a life badly lived. But here's the thing about repentance. If you have changed your mind, it has to come out of your life. And if it doesn't come out of your life, then you haven't repented. So John is telling them even now, if you know that you're guilty before God, then you have to change your mind and then it must affect your life so that your life changes. Now the third part of the gospel, after judgment, after repentance, is to entrust your life to Jesus Christ and obey him. See, the people are listening to John. They're saying, what do I do? He says, do this and do this. And they go, wow, is he the guy? Because they're in a state of expectation. This is a move of God to change their lives. They're going, is this the guy? And John only points to the one who is coming. You notice? He says, I'm baptizing with water. It's a symbol. It's a symbol of repentance. It's a symbol of appealing to God for forgiveness and a clean conscience. But it's a symbol, the one who's coming. He's the one you look for. He's mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. My baptism is a symbol. His baptism is the real thing. Forgiveness of sins, new life with power. So John is always pointing to the one who is coming and not to himself. Did you notice that? This is one reason why the people knew that John was telling them the truth. Because it's not about him. In the Gospel of John, the official delegation from Jerusalem comes and says to John, okay, who are you? Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Who are you? We got to go back and tell these guys something. So who are you? He says, I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. That's it. And see, he's not pointing to himself. He's not drawing people 
to himself. He's not exalting himself or making himself a character because he tells good jokes. He's really good at handling a meeting. Everybody just is really entertained. Nobody's entertained here. He's the real thing because he does not attract to himself. He's only pointing to Jesus. So, we have to leave it here. But the point to this is, have you believed in the gospel? Have you believed the truth that you have lived badly? By living for yourself, not obeying God, not bearing fruit. And do you realize that the judgment of God is against all who live badly? You got a bigger problem than, I can't, or I'm too important, or I'm going my own way, or I don't care. You're under the condemnation of God. That means eternal punishment. Do you ever think about hell? It's just almost beyond comprehension that when you go into hell, you will never come out. That's why the Italian poet Dante, in his poem, wrote over hell, abandon all hope, all you who enter. There is no hope. There's no getting out. And this is a reality. Have you believed the truth about yourself and repented. Remember that you repent, there has to be a change in your life. It has to affect bodily the way you live. And it has to be marked by increasing obedience to Jesus. Now, I was disobeying Jesus one time. And I felt that he was drawing attention to something that was taking my time. And he says, you're better off without it. I want you to get rid of it. And I was resisting that. Because this was special. I could not get this anywhere else. I had it. What's the matter with it? And I went around and around and around with God. And... I was reading a new Bible. It was a new NIV that Joni gave me. And I'd gotten to Deuteronomy 29. And when I read this particular word, it cut me to my heart. It says here, Make sure there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today, whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there's no root among you that produces such bitter poison. When such a person hears the words of this oath and they invoke a blessing on themselves thinking, I will be safe even though I persist in going my own way, they will bring disaster on the watered land as well as the dry. 
And that was what stopped me. I will be safe even though I persist in going my own way. God says, no, you won't. It says in that same chapter, the Lord will never be willing to forgive them. His wrath and zeal will burn against them. All the curses written in this book will fall on them, and the Lord will blot out their names from under heaven. The Lord will single them out from all the tribes of Israel for disaster, according to all the curses of the covenant written in the book of this law. And I read that and I said, Nothing is worth this. I don't care what it is. So I threw it away. And see, obedience has to impact our lives or else we haven't really repented. It can't be an outside, radical, um, over-the-top thing to obey Jesus. And if your faith in Jesus does not alter the direction of your life, you are still on the road to destruction. So have you received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? You know, the water baptism is a symbol And it doesn't save anybody. I've baptized people that have later turned out to be not believers. And they got wet and frozen. But that's it. It's not fire insurance. It means nothing if there's not a changed life. And the only way is to have God affect your life so that you are enabled to live rightly. And this baptism of the Holy Spirit is a necessary part of our lives. Not so that we play tennis without a net and anything goes and woohoo! And this is about just flipping out. No. God has given us his Holy Spirit to utterly dominate our lives and produce within us the character of Christ. Is Christ a weirdo? Does he do inappropriate things at the wrong time? You know, you can read through the whole Gospels. He only does what is right and beautiful. He never says Anything he has to apologize for. And so that is what the Holy Spirit is going to do in our lives. He is going to so lead us and guide us as to live like Jesus. And so... All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. But what if you're not seeking to be led by the Holy Spirit? 
then your repentance is questionable. And your conviction of sin is questionable. And your faith in Jesus is questionable. I don't know. Can you live not being sure of your salvation? Are you content to live that way? I don't know. If Jesus came right now this second, would you be ready? See, Jesus is going to gather up his wheat into his barn and burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. How do we know this? Because the word of God came to John in the year 27 AD. Jesus' second coming is just as historical and real. There is no difference. So you've got to know where you're going. And that is why you're listening to this. So that you can be prepared. And if you're flattened by this and humbled and embarrassed, so be it. Because it's only going to be temporary. What you don't want is to be flattened, embarrassed, ashamed forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is good, even when it's sharp and even bitter, and not what we would want to hear, but it is what we need to hear. And we thank you that you do humble us. So that we would not trust in ourselves. And say, how am I doing? But instead we look to Jesus. And we see what he did already. And we put our trust in him. And then, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would so work in each life here that that repentance to Jesus and that faith in Jesus would become visible. And nobody has to guess if we're a believer in Jesus or not. But it is obvious. Lord, Do that work in us. If there's anybody here who wants special prayer, I'll be happy to pray for you. Why don't you raise your hand and I'll pray. Okay. We also pray today, Heavenly Father, that you would 
fill each one of us with the Holy Spirit. Because we only recognize more and more our need for you. We thank you that you do fill in the valley and you take down the mountain and you straighten out our crooked roads and you smooth us out. Thank you for that. We want to commit ourselves into your hand and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.